US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has been on a whistle-stop tour of the Middle East this week on a frantic mission to alleviate the Israel-Gaza crisis. But it hasn't gone to plan. The meeting between the US Secretary of State and Arab Foreign Minister produced absolutely nothing new. Secretary of State Tony Blinken left the region today after rare public disagreements with America's closest Arab allies. And now, a month into the Israel-Hamas war, America and a few of its European allies have avoided calling for a ceasefire, in stark contrast to others at the United Nations, who did just that. Both Israel and the US were amongst those voting no. The UK, Germany and Italy abstaining. The outcome of this vote shows that the vast majority of world powers want an end to hostilities which has created an opportunity for Russia and China to challenge America's role as global mediator. What I can say is that we are open to all efforts which will help cease the fire, will help de-escalate the tension. There are fears that new global alliances are being forged and the world order is shifting around us. What we have now is an axis of evil, China, Russia, and Iran. So this is a big crisis that needs to be confronted by the most important democracy in the world. So have the wars in Ukraine and Gaza pushed these countries closer together? And should the US and the West be worried? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the new great power block, how China, Russia and Iran are taking on the West. I'm Ahmed Abudur, Associate Fellow with the Chatham House and Non-Resident Fellow with the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., my research focus on China and the Middle East and great power competition in general all over the world. Very relevant now. Exactly. And take us back to the recent spate of US meetings and non-meetings that have taken place over the last few weeks. Because obviously we had this terrible explosion in a hospital in Gaza and a lot of meetings were cancelled with President Biden. He was expecting to meet, first of all, with Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel. He was then expecting to travel from Tel Aviv to Amman in Jordan to a summit to be hosted by King Abdullah of Jordan, which would be attended uh, by the Egyptian President el-Sisi and also the President of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. Well, that summit in Jordan has now been completely cancelled. So one half of President Biden's trip to Israel and the Middle East no longer exists. And it was a... We've seen the US Secretary of State visiting the Middle East again just last weekend. His requests to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for a pause were publicly rejected. Blinken discussed having the Palestinian Authority take over Gaza after the war. The Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas, called it impossible without a completed two-state solution. And in Amman, a rare public disagreement between the United States and two of its top allies in the region, Jordan and Egypt. Just talk us through both of those and what they tell us about how the Middle East now views America. The problem here 
the United States is facing, which was seen by some leaders not wanting to meet with Secretary Blinken or even cancelling a meeting with President Biden, is that they are under huge pressure from the people seeing the United States in the same camp, essentially, with Israel and putting these leaders in a bind. This is an embodiment of the kind of relationship we are having now between the United States and the Middle East, which actually goes back more than a decade ago. Many people in the Middle East see the unequivocal support from the United States to Israel's military invasion of Gaza as double standards. In a way, they compare it to what the United States support of Ukraine against Russia's illegal invasion look like. And now they are encouraging such atrocities against civilians in Gaza. At the same time, it also reflects the diminishing influence the United States uh, has in the Middle East now. Going back to the Iraq war. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. But intensifying after the shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan. At Kabul airport, the desperation is dangerous. An American military transport plane on the runway this morning, mobbed by Afghans trying to flee their country. And the lack of response to attacks by Iran's proxies against Saudi oil facilities in 2019. Tonight, U.S. intelligence indicates the unprecedented attack on Saudi oil fields originated from Iran. Now Secretary of State Pompeo is traveling to Saudi Arabia, which U.S. officials say could retaliate against Iran with U.S. support, but without the U.S. firing a shot. And against the UAE in 2020. So in a way, the United States started to be seen as a partner that cannot be relied on. And the, the countries now, most of the countries in the Middle East, especially influential ones in the Gulf, Egypt, Turkey, and so on, they are adopting a hedging strategy that seeks multipolarity in the Middle East by bringing other great powers in, such as Russia and China. Aha. Now, in terms of Russia and China... We've seen their relationship develop a lot over the last two years. Just take us back to March of this year. It had been just over a year since Russia had begun its invasion of Ukraine. Russia had been heavily sanctioned and, and ostracised by the West. But there was a very significant meeting taking place in Moscow, which will have reassured them. Just talk us through what was happening. So Xi Jinping, the president of China, traveled to Moscow to hold a three-day summit with President Vladimir Putin. This was Xi's first visit to Russia since the COVID-19 pandemic and his first visit to Russia since Putin's military invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. This was intended, I think, to highlight the enduring bilateral alignment between the two countries and emphasize the close personal ties between the two leaders more than a year after the two powers declared a no-limits strategic partnership between them. 
China and Russia announced a new partnership, with China saying it'll back Russia's foreign policy aims and saying it supports Russian demands that NATO halt its expansion. That is seen as an implicit reference to the situation in Ukraine. I think this meeting really seemed to be about showing China Russia solidarity rather than working to bring any end to the war in Ukraine. She also emphasized to Putin the famous sentence that later became a, a catchphrase in Western media. That is, changes the likes of which we haven't seen for 100 years, and we are the ones driving these changes together. Just talk us through that. What, what did he mean? Actually, this sentence has been around for so long, and the source of this charge comes from the Chinese principle of profound changes unseen in a century. This description has defined the Communist Party's leaders' diplomatic thinking over the past decade and gave rise to China's bold diplomatic style we call wolf warrior diplomacy. This whole ideological thinking means that the trend of the rising East and declining West is irreversible and that the world is witnessing a new era of international relations not defined by the United States. It also means that going forward, China will be in a constant struggle for national strength, the system and ideology against those of other Western democratic countries, especially the United States, the EU and the UK. So in a way, Xi's visit to Moscow showed that China sees Russia as a crucial partner in achieving this final outcome by redefining central factors of the rules-based international order. So he clearly sees Putin as a help in changing the world system. He's doing it with him. He's pushing for this complete overhaul of the rules-based system as we've known it and the strength of the West. There also seems to be a, a close personal friendship between them. Yes, he, he called him de friend. Uh, Xi Jinping, when he was leaving, he called Putin de friend. And this showed us that it's not only strategic alignment we are seeing here, it is close friendship. And this close friendship is, is resulting in major changes at the international level. I think what they share in common is a goal to weaken the United States and its allies and reduce what they see as U.S. hegemony over the international system. But I cannot call this a full-fledged alliance, as, as many like to, to call it. Despite Russia and China see great benefits from their strategic alignment, they are still wary of each other. China does not want to be responsible for Russia and its aggressiveness, destabilizing policies in Europe. But also Russia is concerned that its over-reliance on China will turn it into the junior partner to China. And we should say this visit to Moscow by Xi Jinping came very soon after another major diplomatic victory for China. Tell us about that, because over the last century, we've seen America really playing peace broker around the world. And suddenly, for the first time, China emerged in that role. Yeah, absolutely. This, this happened after China played a very important role in facilitating a diplomatic breakthrough between Iran and Saudi Arabia in March. In Beijing, a historic handshake between rivals as the foreign ministers of Iran and Saudi Arabia meet for the first time in seven years. It was a photo op for China as well, eager to show itself as the broker of peace and challenging the United States' role as the main outside power broker in the Middle East. 
This makes it the great diplomatic win for China because it's such a big deal that nobody saw it coming. China welcomes and appreciates the continuous improvement of the relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We will continue to contribute to Chinese wisdom to the security, stability and development of the Middle East. Iran sees a strategic opportunity to align with Russia and, and China. Iran adopts a policy of Lock East through membership of the BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which essentially are led by China and Russia. And Iran thinks that this has an effort to, to reshape the international system and it wants to be part of it. So Iran also benefits from China's desire to be regarded by the international community as a superpower and mediator. And we should say this this is sort of an alliance we're seeing building up, which isn't just based on friendship and mutual interests. As you've been saying, there is an economic driver to all of this too, isn't there? I think the sanctions have dramatically changed the energy and trade networks. The 2.6 million barrels per day of crude oil that China imported from Russia in June is the largest volume China has ever imported from any country in any month. The other example is that Iran's oil exports to China, for instance, reached a 10-year high in August. But, you know, it seems to me, however, that China is the biggest winner in this. So I see going forward uh, that Beijing will, sure, maximize its benefits out of this equation and seek to deepen the two countries' reliance on it. And we should say, while these alliances were already forming before Russia invaded Ukraine, Because of the sanctions imposed on Russia, that clearly accelerated the process. Wars do do that sometimes. They can be a catalyst to accelerating alliances and factions forming. How much have both Ukraine and now the war in Gaza impacted these blocks developing and the relationships between them? I think the the two wars significantly accelerated, specifically the China-Russia and Russia-Iran alignment. For Moscow and Beijing... They help pressure the U.S.-led rules-based international order, expose its limits and shake sometimes the U.S. and Western moral standing to the core, as we are seeing now in the Gaza war. But most importantly, they complicated Washington's pivot to Asia to be able to deal with a rising China. And we are seeing now that the United States is again distracted by the Middle East and, of course, Europe since Ukraine war. They also posed a major test as to how the U.S. can manage crises in two different theaters simultaneously that would substantially strain its sources and planning. Coming up, how calls for a ceasefire have challenged the U.S.'s role as the world's peace negotiator. That's in just a moment. Arnett, a lot of this, you know, the rising power of China and Russia and the spread of their sphere of influence, particularly in the Middle East, does seem to be coming from people also retreating at the same time from the influence that America has had in the past. Just talk us through, you know, at the moment, the US, the UK and much of the EU have refrained from calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Are we seeing China and Russia using that as an opportunity to position themselves as sort of the global mediators in a situation like this? 
the Western powers, US and its allies, essentially blocking a ceasefire creates a vacuum in the region. And I think China and Russia sees that and they are ready to exploit it. At the United Nations Security Council, China is asserting its global position. It's also China's uh, strong will that the Security Council should exercise its responsibilities and also to, to have a strong voice on this really alarming uh, situation and also to take uh, meaningful uh, actions. And this is the message it is rolling out to especially the people in the Middle East. While by voting for a ceasefire and allowing humanitarian aid into Gaza, together with Russia and Iran at the General Assembly. So for that, we welcome all efforts which will be helpful or will, which will help to seize uh, the fire, to de-escalate the tension and for the protection of civilians. China is, is also positioning itself as a, as a peace-seeking, neutral great power, in contrast to the United States, whose committed support for Israel is depicted by Beijing as destabilizing. At the same time, China refrains from condemning or even mentioning Hamas atrocities against civilians in Israel. By calling for a ceasefire, I think, uh, and, and peace process that leads to a two-state solution, I think China is trying to appeal to two audiences. It wants to convince its domestic population that it is a respected power on the international stage that stands for just causes. And it also wants to bring the global South countries, which mostly sympathize with the Palestinians, closer to its orbit. By doing this, it hopes to undermine the U.S. legitimacy and moral standing and mobilize these countries' support for its positions in Xinjiang and Taiwan and Mr. Xi's alternative global governance model, which is enshrined in the Global Development Initiative, Global Security Initiative and the Global Civilization Initiative. And Ahmed, you talked us through the role of Russia and China in this. They want to be seen as big global mediators what about Iran? What's their role in particularly this, this war in Gaza now? How will they be viewing it? I think Iran is at the front line of the war. It has been the principal backer of Hamas with weapons, tactics and training for years. Iran has an intertwined web of proxies such as Hezbollah in Lebanon, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, the popular mobilization forces militias in Iraq and the Houthis in Yemen as part of its forward defense strategy. Until now, I do not think Iran and its main ally Hezbollah in Lebanon see that a regional escalation would serve their interests. However, we should keep in mind that these forces are capable of not only turning the war into a regional conflict if they want, but also causing a huge domestic political crisis for the Biden administration. Any regional conflict could hike oil prices to levels unseen in years and bog down the U.S. military in yet another war in the Middle East, which would put huge pressure on Biden's bid to win the next presidential elections in 2024 and could even grant Trump a victory if he were to run and not be in a prison cell anywhere. And it's really interesting. I mean, um, you know, you talk about China trying to pitch itself to the Middle East now as representing peace and justice. How does the Middle East, do you think, see America right now? What are they seen as representing? This is a big problem for America. I think we are seeing now a paradigm shift. I think we are seeing an inflection point that will create changes that will stay with us for generations to come. 
I think the United States' unequivocal support to Israel will change the perception of the new generation, the growing up generation that are, that are seeing now atrocities happening against civilians. I think this will stay and they will always remember that the United States allowed this to happen and sometimes gave the political cover at the international organizations. But the more nuanced analysis would also touch on what the United States is trying to do. I think in reality, the United States is adopting a three-phased strategy. The first one was the bear hug strategy that is trying to increase its influence on Israel's decision-making to stop this from expanding into a regional war. The second one, trying to sort out the humanitarian issue. Uh, and the third one, which we are going through now and which can be seen in Blinken's visits in the Middle East, trying to sort out a strategy for the day after the war, which can lead to peace process towards a two-state solution. But in the streets in the Middle East, people do not believe these are the aims of the United States. They believe we are seeing double standards. They believe that the Middle East is 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 treated less than Israel and essentially Ukraine in, in this uh, instance. And huge majority of the people now at the moment do not trust the United States anymore. In terms of the vacuum that's being left by America in the Middle East and its influence there, you know, is this part of the successful realigning of the new world order that we know China and Russia had been looking for? And how worried should the West be about this? Yes, it is. If we think about Ukraine war and Israel and Hamas war as one major conflict that encompasses Europe and the Middle East, we will come to, to the conclusion that it is part of the great shifts that Xi Jinping keeps referring to. And these shifts are taking the international system towards a more diversified, more, as the Chinese like to call it, democratized international system that gives China and Russia and their other countries close to them greater say in what's happening in the world. I think they have been successful in aligning themselves with the rising multipolar moment. And I think the West should be very concerned in the long term about its power and position in the world. We need to tone down languages like the axis of evil that is coming from Washington. We know that Iran is directly tied to all this. These are Hamas and Hezbollah are, are proxies of Iran. And they're tied in now with Russia and China. I mean, it is a new axis of evil. I think we need to think again about the binary of democracy versus autocracy that the Biden administration has been deeping in its messaging. And I think we should try to stick to the competition, but cooperation at the same time with these powers and not seek confrontation with them on ideological basis. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Associate Fellow with Chatham House, Ahmed Abadur. You can follow live coverage of the Israel-Hamas war at thetimes.co.uk if you're a subscriber. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer was Fiona Leach. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. 
If you can, please do leave us a review. It helps others to find us. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.